Hello, meaningful minute, meaningful people. This is Real Questions, Real Answers, a contemporary series, weekly series, talking about real questions. Your questions, you can ask them right here. Click that little question mark on the bottom of your screen. You can add your questions through Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. Who needs no introduction. But while we wait for him to join, I'll introduce myself. My name is Moshe Schoenbrunn. I am a campus rabbi at University of Maryland, formerly at the University of Arizona. I am the host of a relatively unpopular podcast, live in Silver Spring, Maryland, and I'm excited to be hosting this Real Questions, Real Answers on Contemporary Topics with Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. To join, everybody could add their questions in the question box right on bottom, and your, your question, question you'll be able to ask it. Rabbi Goldberg. Hello, hello. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all the People joining this live, you could be so many other places, but you're here, you're locked in, listening to the great Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg. This is awesome. Rabbi Goldberg, it is... Hold on. This video is slowly processing. I think Rabbi Goldberg is coming to us live from a outdoor location, probably relatively slower Wi-Fi. And there he is. Okay, so real questions, real answers. What contemporary topics are you thinking about? You can add them in here on the chat box as we bring back Rabbi Goldberg. Let's see. Let's see if it goes this time. All right. So sorry about that. Can you hear me? Yes. Amazing. Okay, great. Amazing, amazing to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. I like your self-deprecating, relatively unknown podcast. Tell us more about the podcast. Uh, yeah, so the podcast is called The Chavrusa. It talks about ideas that have uh, been 3,000 years inspiring the greatest people in history. Uh, really cool stuff, but it's not about me. Rabbi Goldberg, I've been a, a, a secret admirer of yours for, for many, many years, and I think I look up to you greatly because – you personify somebody that is able to approach and, and and seek out Torah from wherever it is, no matter we are in the Torah world, a person of, of real unity, real diversity. So I'm so excited. Uh, I don't think Nahi knew when he asked me to host this how much of a fan I am. So super excited. Um, let's, get, let's get straight to the question. Should we do it? Go for it. First of all, you're overly kind. I appreciate it so much, and it's great to be together with you. Thank you for doing this. Amazing. Okay, so the first question is, in the past week in Afghanistan, there's been major upheaval, and there's many people that are in an imminent danger and a moral crisis facing evil. How does a Torah Jew perceive such actions when they're happening across the world when people are facing um, such prospects? How do, what do we do? Are, are we meant to do anything, think anything? What should be our response as Torah Jews in America? 
It's a great question. And I'm going to give the disclaimer that I'm going to give every time we do this, if this continues, which is that I don't have all the answers. I'm just sharing with you my thoughts. I'm no expert on anything at all. The Gemara Chazal, our rabbis tell us that peronios, bala olam, whatever challenge or struggle exists in the entire world is Bishril Yisrael. It's for the Jewish people. Now, what that means exactly, you know, when a butterfly flaps its wings in Indonesia, it can create a, a hurricane or a tornado across the world. So we don't know what's called the butterfly effect. We don't know how international events unfolding in Afghanistan will impact the Middle East. Israel will impact America and uh, for America, Jews who live in America. And it's not because we're so egocentric or we think the world revolves around us, but we think that we have a responsibility to the world. God put the Jewish people in the world to repair the world, to redeem the world, to make the world a better place. So when the things happen in the world, they're not random, they're not chance, and they're not, they're not divided or they're not um, disconnected from us. We connect ourselves to all world events that are unfolding in a way for us to learn to grow from it. So as we watch these events unfold, certainly our hearts go out to the families of these 12 Marines of the U.S. forces who were murdered today by terrorists in cold blood. And we think about them and their families, and we're grateful to the troops who continue to protect American interests, and we, we wish everyone only safety and, and security. Um, but our attitude as we stay apprised of events around the world is to realize that as Jews, there's a hashkafa, nothing's random, nothing's chance, all is above and all is from, uh, all is from Hashem, all is by design. The Gemara says that Melchamta is atchalta de geula, that war and battle is the beginning of redemption. We don't know. If you're a student of history, there are tensions that, exper- that, that occurred, unfolded in history, that ultimately were the catalyst or the genesis that led to things that had an enormous impact on Jews. At the time the event unfolded, we didn't know that. So we watch carefully, we daven hard, we try to interpret it through the filter, the lens of what is its lessons for us, what do we learn from it, what's our responsibility towards it. Amazing. Okay, it sort of segues into the second question. Israel, over the past recent, very recent time, I know in the, just uh, being on campus in the past five years, the sentiment of Israel has completely shifted and, and the anti-Israel rhetoric that has abounded, um, it, it's, 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 uh, it's tough. Um, and what, what should be our response? How do we respond um, to that? Do we go out and advocate on behalf of Israel? Do we fight anti-Semitism straight on? What's our response to anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism? It's a great what, question. Yeah. It's a great question. Nachi gave me Musa last week, very, very gently and very kindly to try to keep it short, not like rabbinic sermons to each of these questions, because each one really could be hours and hours and hours of unfolding and unpacking through Torah sources and Torah shkafa, Torah lens and life. First of all, we're all grateful to you. Thank you for your leadership on campus and for fighting this fight among others. So thank you for your hard work. It really means the world to all of us. We cannot, we cannot look the other way. We cannot accept it. On the one hand, halacha esav We know that anti-Semitism is as old as the Jewish people itself. It is the world's oldest form of hatred. It, every generation takes on a new uniform, a new form, a new people, and it never makes sense. It's irrational. It never makes sense. So on the one hand, we recognize that it's going to always exist. On the other, you can't therefore become passive or fatalistic or a spectator to it and say, well, what can I do about it anyway? Halacha esav sonas Yaakov. People will always hate the Jews. Kodesh Baruch the Almighty put us in this world to stand up for ourselves and to confront and to face enemies, to speak truth to power, to represent his values, his vision for our world, his kingship. You know, it's about to be Rosh Hashanah. Imru Lefanai Malchios. Hashem wants us to tell the world that he's the king. He is the king. And he created the world. And he is the one who has a vision for the way 
and we are meant we are meant to um, we are meant to be mistaking olam. Now you know there's an old Federation joke they say about the Federation mission to Israel, where one of the participants asked the Israeli tour guard, "How do you say tikkun olam in Hebrew?" Tikkun olam became such a catchphrase that people think it's part of the English uh, language. Tikkun olam, however, Rabbi Pelkovitz, uh, Zechron Levracha, the great Rabbi of the White Shul, once spoke in our shul and he said. When you find the word tikkun olam, you find tikkun l'sakein olam b'machus shakai. We don't just believe in repairing the world in some humanistic type of uh, approach to making the world a better place, but we try to mold and make the world a better place in the image of God. And that's our job. That's our mission. He is behind us. He's in front of us. He's right there beside us. And he wants us to speak truth to power. So whether it's on campus or off campus, uh, and it has to be strategic, we don't want to shine a spotlight on our enemies and give them a bigger microphone than they would have had without it. So we defer to experts, and there are organizations, there are experts who can guide us. When should we shine that spotlight, and when should we confront? When should we ignore, because we don't want to give them a bigger platform than they otherwise had? We use the guidance of experts, but once they do guide us, we got to show up, we got to stand up, we got to step up, because we are ambassadors and agents of Hashem, and He's counting on us to do it. Amazing. Um, if I can ask, I don't know if it's a pushback or whatever. Um, so th- there's the idea... Stephen Covey in Seven Habits talks about there's the, the circle of influence and the circle of concern. So we have the things that we're concerned about. We're concerned about what's going on in the world when, when people are suffering. And yet we have to focus, the successful people focus on their circle of influence. Like what actually can I do? So if I'm sitting right. in my living room, like what exactly, like I'm hearing from the world that we should do something. We should speak right. truth to power, but like what exactly is it in my influence? Cause I can't like get bogged down by everything that's going. Cause I'll go crazy by, by uh, the, the craziness that's out there. Sure. Sure. It happens to be a fantastic follow-up question. So thank you. It's not pushed back at all, but first of all, as, as religious Jews, as people of faith and, and we trust and believe that Hashem runs the world, our, our greatest advocacy has to be to him, you know, an APAC policy conference with 18,000 people from around the world, would gather to stand up for Israel, the U.S.-Israel relationship that hasn't met in a couple of years because of Corona. So in the morning, and there's a greater, greater percentage of observant Jews who are participating in APEX policy conference, I always look at davening and I say, of all the advocacy to all the people in positions of power, this is the most important advocacy meeting that will happen at policy conference, is shachras, is davening, is talking to the Melech Malachim Lachim, to the King of Kings, because in the end of the day, he pulls the strings. He's pulling the strings on all the elected leaders. So even sitting in our home, Say Tehillim, add a little extra davening. Do a mitzvah in the merit of the well-being of the Jewish people. We see a spike in anti-Semitism. If you're concerned, so there's a lot of things people are doing. Some are buying weapons, of course, if it's legal in the train. Others are uh, increasing security on the campus of the institutions. There's a lot of things we should be doing, but at the top of that list, towards the top of the list, has to be asking Hashem for help, protection, doing things in the merit that we are protected, extra learning, extra chesed, tzedakah, and the like. But I also think it's critically important for us to understand that we cannot ever, ever minimize the impact that we can have, even as individuals. The state of Israel exists, of course, because God wants it to, the modern miraculous state of Israel, with all its yeshivas and kolalim and the Torah life going on there right now. But it exists because Harry Truman's partner in the haberdashery business used that relationship to turn Harry Truman's opinion around, so he supported the family and the state of Israel. Right? Apiyateva, which is according to the natural order, not the divine intervention, had he not used his opportunity to continuously come to Washington and use that relationship and advocate, then there would not be a state of Israel. And the same is true today. You have no idea what person in what position of power, be it local, be it local politicians, or be it statewide, or be it uh, national, 
with the relationships we forge. We don't know which phone call, which email, which letter that we write puts that person over the top in changing a vote that can make the difference of billions of dollars of aid to Israel, of laws that protect Jews on college campus or simply on the streets in this country. We have no idea the difference that we can make. And so we know one thing, if we do nothing, then nothing will happen. But if we try, we do Ishtadis, we make our effort, then that too is a form of prayer and hopefully Hashem listens. That's awesome. Beautiful. Thank you, Rob. It's amazing. The comments are saying this is awesome. It's amazing. So if you have more questions, you can drop them in on the question button right here down below. What, a, what an opportunity that we have for from Goldberg. This is amazing. I'm so excited. Um, shifting gears a little bit. Um, this question came in earlier. It says, I feel like many things I do are because that's what's expected in my community. How can I figure out what is actually halakha or chumrah or just culture that the community is doing? Education, education, education. There's unfortunately a challenge within our system that sometimes, um, you know, we have amazing machanachim, rebeyim, moros, we have a great, great Torah system. But sometimes a person, particularly if they're batshuva coming later in life, they don't necessarily understand the nuanced differences between those levels. Sometimes there's a culture in a community that, that practices a particular stringency and yet doesn't communicate that it's a stringency. And therefore, a person who can't feel they can live up to that stringency might end up throwing the whole thing away because they don't understand the difference between what is the core responsibility and obligation versus what is a layer on top. So it's education, education, education. There's never been a greater time in all of history with access to more svar, more books, and more languages, more Torah available on more platforms in more hours of the day. There's never been a greater opportunity to learn Torah and on every topic. So whatever you're curious about and you want to know is it Doraisa, is it Rabbana, Ninag, what, what is its source? What is its nature? Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a very, very careful consumer of Torah. It doesn't mean that anyone out there on the internet, you know, it's a challenge today. Anyone with an internet connection on the keyboard can uh, present themselves as if they're an expert. And they're not. So a person has to make sure it's a credible source they're getting it from. A person competent is the person credible. And then to learn, 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 educate, 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 and understand. And even when we do, we don't pick and choose. There are certain stringencies which have become mainstream within the Torah world, which are a communal norm. There are certain stringencies which we need to know our stringencies. And we're all at different points of life. Not every stringency should be observed, depending where we're at in our own continuum of personal growth. So it's very, very important to know the differences between the two. Um, you know, there are people who, let's say, become from through certain channels who might, you know, give their kids an upsharing but not use the mikvah. They, don't, they think an upsharing is a din daraisa. Like, what do you mean you give your kid a haircut before three years old? They don't know its, its background. And yet they're not keeping Shabbos. And that's not to say that you have to do everything well or nothing or what the order of doing things are, but we have to be educated on the differences between them. That's amazing. To Rob's point, there's, there's that difference between we're in the age of information. Everything's out there and available, but the wisdom to be able to discern what is clear right. and, and resonant and how to extract that and, and really apply that is, is where the real challenge is. Exactly. Um, and actually... It brings up another question. This wasn't pre-submitted, so forgive me. Uh, but the question is, so because there's so much out there, and we we now have access to not only information, but the wisdom of the greatest tzaddikim across the entire spectrum of the Torah world, and sometimes it could be so enticing. You learn from this tzaddik or this particular book or safer, and you get super excited, and then you, you hear it from another one, and there's so much Torah, there's so many different schools of thought, how does one find their own individual path within everything 
um, that's out there and all that diversity of thought, how does one find what is personal and what is really their own path to go with? You know, our generation is confronted with that question, maybe any other that came before, because we have such access and a proliferation of sources we can turn to. But this is an age-old question, and Chazal gave the answer. And Pirkei Avastei told us, you need to have a Rebbe. Now, you could have Rebbe, a Rebbe in different areas of life. There's the person that you talk to about marriage, the person you talk to professionally insights, the person who's certain ashkafas, person who guides you to support these certain questions. But in halacha, we have to choose somebody and turn to them because we have to be consistent within halacha. You can't pick and choose and you can't shop around. Now, the same post like in halacha might give different answers to different people. We can come in and ask the question from an informed perspective. Do our research, be informed, ask the question, and try to understand where the answer is coming from. But it's important to be consistent, the only way we can know to be consistent is that in halacha, we have a rebbe, we have a teacher, we have boundaries, we have somebody who's guiding us, somebody who's lifting us, we have somebody who is shining the light who we can follow in their footsteps, we can follow on their path in their way. That's true in halacha, but it's really important. I have a lot of strong feelings on this. I wrote an article recently called uh, I'm, not an, I'm Not a Modern Orthodox Rabbi. And I, again, we don't have enough time, even if we went on a long time and I gave long answers, but that's true in halacha. I say lacharav, you need one rebbe in halacha. But I think that when it comes to some of the other hashkafa, the perspective, I think there are 70 faces of Torah. There were 12 tribes. There were 12 entrances into our holy temple, the base of Mikdash. And there are a lot of different perspectives. And we can learn and glean and take the best from all. That we can live in one of those gates and we can enter the world of, of our relationship with Hashem through one gate and, and visit other gates. But sometimes there's a 13th gate. Beis Mikdash had a 13th shah. There was a 13th gate. The Arizal, the great mystic and Kabbalist, said that his sitter, his nusach, was the nusach of the 13th grade, the Shar HaKolel. And there's a world of people, I count myself among them. This is no judgment of anyone who doesn't. Anyone who's comfortable living in one tribe, living, walking through one gate, should, should do well there. There's no judgment. But there's a world of people who say, I live in the Shar HaKolel. I like to think the best of all that's out there. And I live a life that's unpredictable. You can't put me in a box. And a Rebbe, Reb Lachman, and Karen Biavna, who would say, you'll put me in a box when I'm dead. But while I'm alive, don't put me in a box. It may be more convenient for you. You want to slap a label on me? You want to put me in a box? That's more convenient for you? That's not me. I look at the world, and I'm a shtickle chassidish, and a shtickle sfardi, and a shtickle um, chabad, a shtickle yeke, and a shtickle a litve, and a shtickle. I can take a little bit from every world, the best I think of every world, and, um, and, and develop a rich tapestry of my life, my outlook of life, and my practices in life. So in halacha, there has to be consistency. But in terms of hashkafa, the way I view the world and my thinking of the world and my experience of the richness of the world, I think uh, I'm comfortable in that shah hakolel. I love living in that 13th gate. It's amazing. Uh, to, to the Raspa, I think there are certain articles that are seminal articles in Jewish thought that really, you know, Rav Aaron Lapiansky's article about Mashiach, that was like, it's groundbreaking. There are certain articles that shift and, and, and tap into the trend. And the Rose article on why not modern Orthodox is a must-read. It's an article that, that is a generational article. Um, to the extent that I count myself as a Jew of the 13th Gate, I actually we, – uh, we started an initiative here in Maryland called the 13th Gate where we try to – each week, pull from a different sect in Torah, from a different aspect and corner, um, and tap into the Torah. So that 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 article has had a, a mega impact on me, and and uh, I'm so happy that the Thank you shared. so much. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. You know, and if anyone wants to read it, and I don't know if it's seminal, I don't know if it make a difference. It really, I'll tell you the truth. I just got it off my chest. I had been wanting to say it, uh, and I I felt better getting it off my chest. And if it resonates for anyone else, wonderful. You know what I felt, and what precipitated that article is, I felt there's a community of people 
who live in the 13th gate, but they don't, they think they're all alone. They don't realize there are other people who live there with them. It's a polarized world and it's a world trying to put people in a box and make you conform. And I just wanted to put it out there that, hey, I live in the 13th gate. And if you want to come live with me there, then let's be friends. So if anyone just Googles, I'm not a non-Orthodox rabbi in my name, they'll find that article and um, no one's obligated to read it. But if it means something to you, I'm honored. It's amazing. I think everyone's obligated to read it. Um, okay, so, so the next question is, shifting gears, everyone could still add, uh, add some questions into the question box here. Um, in the meantime, until you get in your questions, and as long as the Rav uh, lets us, allows us to continue uh, picking his mind here while he's at a, another Simcha, so we're super appreciative. Um, and the question is about materialism. And the questioner is saying that they invest a lot, I'm paraphrasing, invest a lot into their Shabbos and Yom Tov experience. They really want for their family, for their kids to feel excited about Shabbos, about Yom Tov. So they invest, they get premium sushi and the whole meal, it's top-notch, all the dips, all the challah, and it's amazing. Charcuterie. charcuterie boards, meat boards, fish, it's, it's all there. Now, the question is, the questioner wants to know, are they being too materialistic? Mm, so Chazal tell us that the money that we spend on Shabbos and Yantif, the Hotzas, the money we spend to honor Shabbos and Yantif is going to come back. That doesn't come out of what was allocated to us on Rosh Hashanah. In, in just a week from now, we're going to dive in hard. And uh, what we are, the, the maximum that we could qualify to earn this year will be determined from above. But we spend the Shabbos and Yantif doesn't come out of that. So you'll say, well, then let me go, let me go extreme, right? Let me go, let me go all out. I'm going to buy top-notch wine, single malt scotch. I'm going to have delicacies. I'm going to have first-cut meat. I'm going to have catered meals because, hey, that doesn't come out of my top mind. So certainly contemporary writers, but even going back to the Rishonim, they say that when the Gemara and Chazal make us that promise, they're talking about in moderation. What's reasonable and in moderation does not come out of our, our, uh, what's been allocated for us. If you go extreme and you're living outside of your, your comfort zone, Hashem's not going to make a miracle. If you can't afford it and you put yourself in debt, you're not going to have a miracle in order to be able to afford it. So I think the rule of thumb is to ask yourself, is what I'm providing, what I'm cooking, what I'm putting out on my table, is it Lekavad Shabbos? Am I honoring Shabbos? Or is it Lekavad me? Lekavad my boich? Am I honoring myself? Am I doing it? Because even if no one were around, that's how I want to honor Shabbos. Am I doing it because I want everyone to know, those at my table and those who will hear about my table, what my table looks like? Is it for my honor or for the honor of Shabbos? And I think that's the litmus test. That's the metric. And if the answer is it's for honor Shabbos, then it's beautiful. If you can afford it, you're not in debt. It's reasonable. You're not relying on a miracle. Then honor Shabbos. Go for it. God bless. But at the end of the day, you're looking for the honor for yourself. Then that is not a way to honor Shabbos. Then a person. So moderation. Don't stand out. We are obligated. We're enjoined to live in moderation, to live within reason. So on the one hand, don't get cheap when it comes to Shabbos. Chazal say, you're going to make that money back. Don't worry. God's got you covered. What you spend on Shabbos and Yantif. But on the other hand, within moderation, the covered Shabbos Kodesh, it should be to honor Shabbos, not to honor you. It's a deep answer. So it's hard to, to actually determine, is this coming because of me? Because I want, yeah, back my mind, I'm thinking what people are saying and what, how they're processing well, I'll you, it. I'll, I'll tell you a good way to think about it. If no one were around, there were no guests at Shabbos, and nobody could see through the windows of your home, and no one would know, would you be buying that? If you were home alone for a Shabbos, Nobody around, for whatever reason. person were home all alone. Would they still be investing? Would there be sushi, charcuterie boards, high-end this, high-end that? Is it Lekavit Shabbos, or is it, is it something else? And that, you know, if, if you answer that I would never do that when I were alone, if I were alone, get a piece of chicken, buy a piece of kugel, call it a day, then, then you know the answer to your question. 
Let's do That's one great. more. I, st I stepped out of a Sheva Brachas and any minute now. Gonna yes. Out yeah, yeah, yeah. No, quick, one more. We have time for one, one more. more. One more. Yeah, just, yeah. just on the last point, real quick. I uh, saw in the back of Nefesh Shimshin on Shabbos with Shimshin Pinkus, he gave uh, also a similar litmus test. He said, well, let's say you buy that charcuterie board, and then somebody sitting next to you, a guest at the meal, just takes the whole thing and eats the whole thing. Right? So uh, if you're upset, then obviously it was for you, not for Shabbos. But if you're happy, oh, another Jew had a coven Shabbos, then, you, then you'll be excited. Okay, so the last question is going to be, uh, about forgiveness, very seasonal. So to what extent should one forgive? If somebody feels that they're in the right, that they have a, a certain claim, should they forgive about it? Because if they do forgive, it will, it will lessen all the division and people will stop talking and they could just move on from it. Or is there a certain point to, to stand on principle and, and not forgive? It's also, you know, each of these questions is a two-hour conversation. There was a big machlokas between Simon Wiesenthal and Elie Wiesel whether there are things that are unforgivable. There was a story of a Nazi on his deathbed who asked Simon Wiesenthal for forgiveness. He wrote a book, I think it was called The Sunflower, and, um, and he granted the forgiveness, not that he could represent all of the Jewish people, and there was a big debate, a big machlok, as always tell Simon Wiesenthal, are there things that are unforgivable? Or is everything forgivable if a person asks for forgiveness? Sometimes the other party doesn't even ask for forgiveness. The problem is that when you carry it around, they've moved on, it weighs you down. The fact that you're carrying it around doesn't impact the person. You didn't even ask for forgiveness. It just weighs us down. So our rabbis, as always, had a great insight. And they said, a person who's who's al-midosav, if you're forgiving and forgoing, if you don't carry a grudge, even when you deserve the apology that you don't get, then God's going to be forgiving of us. No one's perfect. We're not perfect. Are we adequately asking God for forgiveness? Are we adequately taking responsibility, owning up to him? So it's magnanimous. It's going above and beyond. When we forgive someone who didn't even ask for it and doesn't deserve it, um, you know, we're doing it because it should be a merit for ourselves and a tribute that, and the recognition that the longer we hold it, the heavier the heavier point, the forgiveness is not, not even about the other party. Certainly if they haven't asked for it, at some point the forgiveness is really about us. I'm getting the phone call. I got to run back in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege to do this. I hope we'll continue if people are enjoying it. I look forward to continuing it. Wishing everyone a holy Shabbos, an amazing Shabbos. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you so much. Enjoy the shower, Rachas. All right. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.